Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 38 of Citizen Dame. The podcast where everything sucks, life is terrible, and, um... Yeah. The Chris Hemsworth anyway. past pants. Yeah, you were just in the Chris Hemsworth cult last week. Come on! Uh, <laughs> you know, but I had to leave the Chris Hemsworth cult. This is the problem. Because men are evil and will hurt you. Oh my gosh. Not Chris they Hemsworth. All They're all out to get us, ladies. Um, Hemsworth's still good, so... right? Hemsworth hasn't fucked anything up, right? Yeah, we're, not we're okay that we so know. far. Okay, so we will get to some some not terrible people later, but at some um, point, I feel like we need one of those like things um, in like a workplace where it's like, gar- like men, <laughs> like <laughs> days with like men who are still not garbage, kind of like a days without accidents thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, Back first of all, <laughs> first of all, I'm Karen Peterson. I'm joined by Kristen Lopez. Hello, Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hi. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello. They all sound so much brighter and more optimistic than I. I feel. want Karen's I'm high to be, or uh, yeah, Lauren's high to be what what my cell phone answers. Very <laughs> very peppy, very very cool. <laughs> Which is so funny because so many people have commented to me that they think Lauren is the angriest person alive, and I'm like, oh no, she's really no, not. just just on the she- internet. Just she on enjoys the this. This is fun. This is yeah. this is her recreation. Yeah. <laughs> although, although so, sometimes sometimes I'm truly angry. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's... And I can tell the difference. So um, loud, a lot of people can't. And you know what? That's fine. Fuck them. Um. Anyway. So. Um, Karen might get be right the into. angriest person on the podcast today. I am yeah. today, and I'm actually going to get into exactly why. Um. So, yesterday, I guess this actually was published on Thursday, but yesterday the news broke or it started just spreading like wildfire. Chloe Dykstra, um, she's an actress. Um, she has done all kinds of things. She's she's really involved mostly in like the geek cosplay world. Um, she wrote an article on Medium where she detailed a lot of um, domestic abuse that she was going through while she was dating. She doesn't name him, but she basically does. Um, Everybody knows it's Chris Hardwick, who um, started the Nerdist podcast, which grew into a whole network. And eventually he, I mean, he started on TV, like with MTV, he was on Singled Out. Um, He hosts every AMC after show that there is like that started with talking dead, but then they did some other, other shows too. He has his own talking with Chris Hardwick. Um, for now, AMC still hasn't said anything about the future of that, which is supposed to start this weekend. Um, but anyway, she talks very detailed about the things that he did, um, and how abusive their relationship was. And, that he was super controlling and manipulative. He isolated her from everyone that she was close to. It was very much that she was supposed to be at his beck and call all the time. 
And she was, I mean, to really read what she's writing, she is essentially not much more than like a sex slave in, you know, and to make it even worse than that, he had another friend, another, a female friend who was part of this and was complicit in helping. And together when she decided that she, she needed to be done with it, they completely blacklisted her. And she got to the point where she was so depressed she you know at one point was suicidal thankfully she didn't go through with that she's doing so much better now she's been through years of therapy she's in a a relationship with someone who treats her right um she's moved on but she was ready to part of her healing process was to say hey this happened to me and um so that circled like crazy yesterday everything it just it just kind of exploded so here's the thing um I don't know Chris Hardwick like we're not friends or anything but um (laughs) literally 10 minutes before she posted her tweet saying I wrote this thing and a lot of people are starting to read it I submitted (laughs) audio (laughs) for my other site a word circuit And it was this whole interview package that I've been putting together for like a month. Because a month ago, I actually sat down face-to-face and interviewed Chris Hardwick. And um, here's the thing. For me, I have always been somebody that... um, I've always been a good judge of character. I know when something's not right. Or I know when, when, you know, someone is just, like, a friend is just feeling a particular way and they put that smile on their face. Like, I can always see right through that. I always just know. And the thing about this situation is it's not about Chris Hardwick. It's not about him, really. I mean, he's just this, essentially, a celebrity-adjacent nerd who figured out how to make a boatload of money doing exactly what we're doing. He started off, you know, he got a lot of fame as a podcaster and turned that into a, a, an empire and worked his way into a TV show. I don't really care so much about him. The thing is that I sat down with him face to face. I've watched his shows for years. I was at tapings of his shows. I've never seen, even when all this was happening, I've never seen any indication that he was this person. And for me, it really just, it, it, it really rocked me because I, I, it made me realize that I can't trust anyone right now. And I know that the people that I usually like have a good sense about are just normal everyday people who haven't, you know, made a career out of presenting a particular image. I get that. But that's, that's the problem. Like I realize I'm in this industry now and I'm talking to people face to face sometimes and sometimes over the phone and I I go man you know I was expecting this person to be an ass but he turned out to be really nice and that has happened to me a bunch of times where I you know someone that I expect to be a total jerk isn't and so then I think well maybe people are wrong about them and I'm realizing I can't do that I have to be on my guard all the time and I I feel right now like, I just have to, you know, I just have to assume everyone is an asshole. And, like, I just, that's that's my problem. And that's why I'm feeling so completely 
blindsided by this this stuff. I mean, the interview I had with him started out with me apologizing to him for a joke I told on Twitter last year that he responded at the time because he didn't think it was very funny. And so I apologized. And then I explained the joke to him. And he was like, oh, actually, now that I'm hearing you talk about that, that's really funny. And it was just like this moment. And I thought, wow, he's so cool. And we talked about how social media is this cesspool and how people, especially in the nerd community, which the nerd culture, holy shit, that is a cesspool of just toxic grossness. And I really, I bought it. I totally bought that he was above all that, that he was not steeped in that culture, but he 100% is. And I just, I mean, I'm kind of at this point now where I don't really know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to proceed. <laughs> and it just, it really, it left me totally thrown. But I just, you know, I, I look at Chloe Dykstra and I think, oh my gosh, this woman went through and she was young she was in her early to mid 20s going through this and survived it and I just my heart goes out to her I I just I can't imagine how terrifying it was for her to publish that story and I'm so glad that she did and I'm glad that she's at a place now where she is healed enough that she can face that publicly and let everyone know what this, you know, what this man is all about. And I just, I hope that this is, you know, I hope that she's able to move forward from this feeling, feeling lighter, feeling like that burden is lifted because she, she deserves happiness and I hope that she finds it. So, um, yeah. Who else wants to say something? I mean, you know, I, I talked to you about this yesterday. Um, but, you know, I I am the first person to admit that I joke about the flaws of people I love, okay? And, and I think that we, as writers, we tend to come at the concept of celebrity from very different places. Um, so... You know, it, I'm sure there's somebody that's going to be listening to this thinking, like, Karen's totally naive. Like, they're celebrities. They're, you know, that's just what they do. Um, and, I mean, that's that's something we go into this knowing. Um, that, you know, the nature of persona plays such a role in, in things. You know, that, that people we interview want to promote something. And unless they want to shoot themselves in the foot, you know, um, they're, they're going to be as nice as they can be. Um, but it, it really does, especially with the way things have been now in the wake of Me Too, it really kind of puts into sharp relief how insidious that, that persona can become and how pervasive, you know, because you have this emotional connection to, to movies um, and to celebrities. And when that, that concept is, is changed, like, you take it personally because you have this emotional connection. Um, so I think... You know, for a lot of people, like, Hardwick represents them, you know, they, as you pointed out, Karen, this guy that made a lot of money, he's the success story for what you could do. I think it's really interesting that this comes out at the same time as the Annenberg study, um, yeah. which was talking about how essentially pop culture writing and, and film criticism are, are horrible unless you're a white male. Um, and Hardwick, I think, 
there's been a contingent of people, and I've been of that contingent, that has said, well, Hardwick's just the apotheosis of of white male nerd culture. Um, I, you know, I don't have the, the connection to him that I think his fans have. Um, he's the talking dead guy. Like, that's it um, to me. Like, he married a Hearst. That's, uh, if anything, I always see that he's more famous for the opportunistic marriage he made. Um, so, so for me, like, when I read this, I was like, oh, okay, shocker, not surprising. But I think, I think Karen's, you know, point is that a lot of us who are in the privileged position to do interviews, you know, we do get this concept of, like, well, they weren't addicted, like, great example, I've talked to Tarantino. Tarantino's super nice to me. Like, I will be the first one to, like, be super happy about telling everybody my story about how I met Tarantino. He was so nice to me, and we had this great chat. But at the same time, like, you read all this stuff about how Tarantino's an asshole, and, like, I think we respond to it differently. Like, everybody responds to how those things happen differently in, in those positions. And I think this this whole Me Too movement is really making people see just how deep that emotional connection to cinema runs and what that says about them that they have these emotional connections to people that are really fucked up in certain ways um in terms of the allegations themselves like it's frustrating to me that we're getting to the again that gray area i read this in a way not unlike the aziz ansari piece it's similar but they're not at all the same but it's that concept of you're hearing people say oh well, they just had a really bad relationship. Like, that's that's just a shitty relationship. And I think that there are people who, the fact that people still believe that, that it's okay for, you know, his, his treatment because they were dating. And that's not okay. If anything, that's textbook. Like, that's textbook abuse 101. And, and so I just, I want more people to stop getting the notion that unless it's like, Harvey Weinstein physically holding somebody down and raping them that oh it's not real um I like I hate the concessions we make for people like like Hardwick but for people like you know the the multi just the, I'm so sick of people in general it goes back to that connection you know people because they are connected to they feel like Hardwick is one of them like it must not be there's there's got to be that mitigation one always goes hand in hand so I'm just frustrated by the... I, I think more in this instance, I'm frustrated by other people's responses. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and because it's it's within a community that it, that most of us at least have interactions in, if not, like, actually know people within it and are friends with them. And, and so it's very... It, it feels that the, the public reaction, at least, has been very similar to some of the reactions to Devin Farachi. Um, when that happened a thousand years ago, he, who, by the uh, way, is back on Twitter uh, on a private yeah, account. Yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Devin, I will fucking punch you in the face <laughs> if I ever meet you. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> I actually probably won't. I'll just, like, look at you and just be like, I hate you so much. Um, but but it's a similar reaction in that, you know, this is this is someone who, who is known. This is someone that people are friends with. This is someone that, like, has a, a big... You know, this is someone who who's associated with with the Nerdist website, even though he's not involved with it anymore. And you've got a lot of writers, a lot of women, a lot of people that are involved in all of that. And and so there's, there's a sense that this is more personal in some ways than um, within this community than Weinstein or anyone else. 
because it's not just a celebrity who's making art, it is a, a person that you have interacted with some people on a daily basis. Uh, and it seems like, you know, like you're saying, Karen, one of the good guys. I, I said this earlier, I didn't really know who Hardwick was until yesterday. Uh, I'd vaguely heard his name, and but it just, it wasn't on my radar, it wasn't something that I was involved in, I didn't know anything about him. And reading that essay, what, what made me so mad was just reading that essay. And I don't know how anyone can read what she wrote and turn around and say, well, we need to hear his side of the story. Or she's lying. Or this, you know, oh, this is just a normal relationship. No, there is no, on, by no measure is this a normal relationship. This is an abusive relationship. She was abused for a long time in some pretty horrific ways. And, and she was gaslit, basically. And then when she finally gets out of it, she is blacklisted. You know, she's basically said, you're not gonna, it basically is because this man is powerful and because he has access, you're not gonna get to work in this industry. We're gonna try, we're gonna, he's gonna do his best to keep you out of this industry and he's gonna use his friends. And it's, again, very reminiscent of some of the, the garbage men that we've talked about, like Devin Faraci, like some of the other male critics and, um, and gatekeepers who are continuing to sort of perpetuate this toxic nerd culture, this toxic film bro culture that is going to keep on happening unless we actually change things, unless some of the, the quote, good men actually step up and say, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to end this kind of behavior and we're going to open spaces for women and for minorities and we're going to remove these toxic men. Just fucking purge them. Get rid of them. They are no longer welcome in this industry. They don't get forgiveness. They don't get to come back in a year. They don't get to come back in six months and be like, oh, I worked on myself. Like, no, fuck you. You're done. You're done. Go, go off into your corner and leave everybody else alone. We don't want you here. Yeah. I'm pissed. I mean, obviously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is, yeah, this is when I think we're, we're all really pissed yeah. for good reason. And I mean, that's one thing that I find interesting is that Nerdist is essentially run by women now. And it's interesting that that happened before we knew about this, but it's also, it makes it, um, a little bit like, oh, good. They got, you know, in this case, the toxic dude isn't in charge anymore. But I also want to say, like, don't go attacking Nerdist because he's not involved in it. The people that are running it now are not part of this, at least as far as we know. And so don't attack them for, for what, what he did. And, um, yeah, just let them let them continue to do the good work that they're doing. Kim? Well, I was going to say here, here. I mean, I... I have been, I haven't been a fan of his since the singled out days, but I mean, I go back to the early days of Nerdist when I was watching that. And this felt like such, I mean, cause I was, I came up in geek culture. I came up in nerd culture. The beginnings of kind of my interest in all of this was through Comic-Con days. And to have this happen, well, and especially since when I have first started getting into this I was in a not so great place myself in a not so great relationship myself was when I was starting to really get passionate about this I've been a fan of his I've seen him do stand up live in Denver a handful of times and just to read what a slimeball asshole he was especially when I was supporting him when I was dealing with you know 
an asshole slime ball of my own was it feels like such a huge betrayal and this one hurt to such an extent but i echo lauren's just with this toxic masculinity fuck them i i am done with this fucking you know this fucking toxic you know nerd geek boy culture film boy culture and they just need to sit the fuck down and give everybody else a chance Kristen, what were you going to say? Oh, well, I was going to go back to what you were saying about the, the Nerdist website. And ironically, we were going to have an unnamed person from Nerdist um, who, who works for them as a guest on the show um, well before all this happened. Um, and unfortunately, that person couldn't be on. But, um, you know, knowing several people who, who are employed by them, it's it's been heart- disheartening to see so many people attack them and... and leave them vitriol because yeah it's it's a predominantly female crew there and they are some talented amazing people um some of the nicest people you'll ever meet so don't be a dick to them just because they are associated with a company that is now no longer associated with him they actually did probably the best website response to any two allegations that i've seen so far which is that they immediately scrubbed him from everything and then put out a really well-written statement that was written by the staff that was saying how unacceptable his behavior was and that they weren't gonna put up with it um mind you they are not they weren't associated with him for the last two years but they still came out and said like you know we we can only do x things and apologize and hopefully you know you'll forgive us it was actually really nice to see a a website do the best they could do well, and it was like, um, yeah, the women need to be writing these statements from now yeah. on, guys, because they know how to do this. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, I think that maybe we just need to get rid of all straight white men. Uh, I like that. Can we, keep, can we keep the pretty straight white men? As long as they keep their mouth shut. No, no, no. Just in the, just, just saying, like yeah. in the critical okay. community, they just all need to leave. I'm okay with that. For like a year, at least a year, and be like, okay, we're gonna let. Everyone else, do you know, do all of the coverage, write all of the statements, write all of the articles, go to all of the films, all of that stuff, and just see what happens. I mean, I'm not saying that it'll be perfect. I'm not saying that this will be a utopia, but, you know, we can't do any worse. Right. And then after a year, we let them apply to come back in, and yeah. we accept them You're on all canceled. case-by-case basis. We'll think about hearing from them. <laughs> or case basis. Yeah, we, we're, you're all canceled. You have to apply to be uncanceled. Yes, Exactly. We might bring you back. And maybe. it's not permanent status. You get a traveling visa <laughs> that is irrevocable at any time. You have to reapply periodically. Or is revocable. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. The thing, the thing, too, like, oh, my gosh. Yesterday, like, I just felt so, like, ugh, it just, it really messed with my head big time. And, like, I was telling you guys on, on our Slack channel like i went and saw tag wrong movie choice you're (laughs) pissed off at the patriarchy and really feeling down on toxic masculinity don't go see the movie tag um there were a lot of problems but the whole time like you know john ham is in it and he's got that perfect hair and that you know bright smile and every time he would like smile for the camera i would just be like what smiles are you hiding be- or what secrets are you hiding behind that smile John Hamm like I don't trust you anymore and like I was realizing man I just assume they all suck now they're all terrible and- see and, and that's <laughs> I will tell you that is my the exact opposite of me 
Um, because I will be the first person to tell you, like, I'm fairly confident in nearly everybody. Great, great example. We all know of my love for Josh Brolin. I will be the first person to tell you. I joke about it all the time because it's true. I'm like, I have no, no belief system in Josh Brolin. I'm fairly confident he is the biggest. I've heard from people he is an asshole. And that's just the humor of it is that I can joke about it. Yeah. And that's that's where we are. I think we all like come at the concept of celebrity from different ways and try to at least find some way of dealing with with the fact that you know you're dealing dealing with humans, male humans, which are the worst kind of human. Um, so so yeah, it's it's been really interesting to to kind of hear Karen. And then be like, I'm the cynic who just naturally assumes, like, aside from, like, maybe two men on my list, I assume they're all scum. And I'm like, I, I, I'm okay with that. I deal with that how I have to. Uh, but, I mean, I think we, we talked about this very early on in this podcast, uh, when we're talking about, you know, who would really break your heart? You know, who, if you found out that they had done something really terrible, um, you know, and I, there is a difference between being mean once in a while mm-hmm. and being an abuser um but so like if you were to find out certain actors or certain celebrities etc if they had be- behaved really badly you know what would who would just really break your heart and i think that all of us have those at some level you know you, you want to be cynical i i am somewhat cynical because some of my favorite people have been proven to be terrible yep. um but at the same time, you want there want you want to hang on to something to be like okay, this one person is okay. This one person is is you know is actually the person that they present themselves to be on screen or in public, etc. And of course, you can't know that. There's no way to know that. And it, and there might be shit in their past that is going to come out. There might be stuff that they're do, that's doing right now that is never going to come out. You can't know that. So there. It, it's hard. It's very, very hard. I totally sympathize with Karen on this one. Um, that there are just some people that you're like, oh, this really, this really wrecks me. This really destroys me. I mean, I could, I could name five men right now that I would be absolutely destroyed if I found out anything terrible about them. But at the same time, if I do, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to work through it. Yeah. Uh, and and believe believe the women who talk about them and believe what what is actually being said about them versus my personal feelings. Well, we all know that my wee lamb, Timothy Chalamet, is perfect. I mean, nothing bad is ever because he's an infant. Okay, well, see, you know, he is the bright ray of sunshine in this dumpster fire, okay? (laughs) God. Well, let's just move on to continue to talk about toxic masculinity and how people suck, especially in geek culture. Um, Young Millie Bobby Brown, who is 14-year-old star of Stranger Things... She deleted her Twitter account this week. Um, I don't know about Instagram. I just know about Twitter. But uh, she deleted that because there were some horrific memes that were spread about her where people would take pictures and then change the captions to make it look like she was saying really homophobic stuff. And it was awful. And so she's gone off of Twitter and... There are people that just think this is the funniest thing in the world and they're totally celebrating this and I just like what the fuck you guys she is 14 years old it was bad enough what they did to Kelly Marie Tran but to do this to a 14 year old kid like what the hell 
I don't even know well, what to say. I mean, the problem is, is, is where, where she is concerned, you see a lot of the problems kind of writ large, not just for, for geek culture, but I think for, for women in the industry. I mean, she's sure. also the, the girl that people were sexualizing at, you know, the age of, what, 13? Mm -hmm. and, and saying, oh, you know, she's so grown up, and she's wearing this dress, and, you she's know. She's grown up right before our eyes. Yeah, no, she's and. she's still a child. And, and I think Mara Wilson was the one that was like, no, you you need to let her be a, a child. You don't do this to, you know, predominantly male actors, even though child male actors get harassment of a whole different stripe, they still get that. Um, you know, and it just it just reminds you that, like, I was I was having this conversation with my mom the other day. I was like, child, I don't I don't understand how in the Me Too movement we're ignoring child performers where we know there's no oversight on on protecting them from whether it's toxic masculinity to stuff on set like this just this just makes me feel like it's as much as lauren wants white male critics to like go away for a year i want us to take away all child stars and let them have like a year to decompress until hollywood fixes the problem and then we can slowly let children back into the industry because i i just feel like this is a continual problem with with young girls that like we force them into these these roles and then when they don't conform we want to make their lives so horrible that they end up like not wanting to be on social media i mean that was truly disturbing i stumbled on that story what was it sometime this week i can't even fathom why people would think that would be appropriate it truly boggles the mind that it's it's sick it's disgusting people have issues and they just need to stop lauren uh yeah <laughs> uh but i mean uh, one of the things i was thinking about as we were talking about was okay so what can what can be done a lot of things can be done first of all twitter has a serious problem with nazis twitter has a serious problem with not enforcing their own rules or enforcing um, so them you... in in um, inconsistent unbalanced ways, ways. <laughs> yeah inconsistent yeah. um and so and twitter needs to step up on this you can't stop people from making those memes but you can remove their accounts when they post them you can stop them from from putting that out into into the ether and actually you know harassing this girl to the degree that she's just like i don't want to do this anymore um and it's the same thing within the, within the industry you can't completely eliminate abuse uh that's that that is an issue of, of the widespread culture and that is something that the culture has to work on it's going to take a very long time but you can put protections in place you can dedicate whole in whole uh, sections of the industry to actually protecting these kids to protecting women to you know one of the one of the things that time's up is supposed to be doing is giving women access to legal funds and to counseling and to, to you know any time that there is this kind of sex of sex discrimination or abuse to actually have recourse yeah and that's what has to be done and it has to be done on the internet the internet is a cesspool but we can clean it up like we it does not have to be like this and it it the problem is that it really is up to the people in power right now to do that and a lot of them are not invested in making things safe for underprivileged or underrepresented human beings and that includes 
50 percent of the population which well, is women as, right? as we're gonna say in a later story most of the people in power who are they white men yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the things, and I'm not entirely sure how to regulate this. I mean, I think that it's time for Twitter to verify every account um, and not just make that blue check mark like a status symbol. Um, I think that would help in some ways because one of the things that I find troubling is adults following kids on Twitter. Like, I know yeah. that, okay, yeah, so... These kids are talking about their show, which I happen to be a big fan of Stranger Things. But to me, like, I don't follow any of the kids because that feels weird. I'm an adult. Why would I follow these children? And, but I know a lot of people don't see it that way. But I think that that's part of the, part of the thing. You limit adult access to interacting with these kids. And that helps curb some of the cyberbullying. And the only way to enforce that. Like, if you say, okay, if you're over 18, you can't follow anybody who's under 16 or something. But the only way to enforce that is they have to verify accounts. They have to. Mm -hmm. So. A, a big part of that's the industry. I know for, I know on Twitter, and it's, there is an account who has tried, who has followed me a few times looking, I mean, must be aching mm -hmm. for a follow. And it is very clearly, it's a baby actor account it's nothing but pictures of probably a two or three year old actor and it says in the bio that it's you know this child is an actor and the account is ran by parents and it's why why does mm -hmm. that need to be a thing and a part it's there needs to be more regulation with these child actors with these child stars because it seems to me that these parents in this particular case are truly aching for attention for their child that's i and i have not followed it because no why am i going to follow a yeah. you know account of nothing but you know three-year-old headshots it's gross i got hit up by that same account i'm sure so did i <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyway okay but let's talk about something happy please <laughs> Um, there are pictures of Wonder Woman 1984, <laughs> and those pictures feature Chris Pine with a fanny pack. Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay, so I'm of, I'm of two very, very conflicted minds about the fact that the first image they released of Wonder Woman 1984 was Chris Pine. I was kind of hoping, like, maybe we would have parceled that out later. <laughs> um, maybe get us a couple photos of Wonder Woman first. Um, I think just just well, there were two that were came at the same time, and one was her in front of a bunch of TV screens. Right, and they just now released another one of her in the costume. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I was kind of like, maybe we shouldn't have picked that one to, to debut first. Also, I don't like when we try to bring back dead people unless it's for a point. Or unless it's I The Walking Dead. Um, so yeah, I noticed how Karen let me slip that one under the radar. Um, but but um, watching, I mean, Chris Chris Pine's great. I love Chris Pine. Um, but I I want to know why he's there. Why he has a fanny pack. Um, like is is this um, gonna it's be the eighties? But is this a dream sequence? And or is he actually fucking resurrected? Is he Jesus? 
I mean, I've always said Chris Pine is, is Christ-like, but, I mean, is he literally Jesus? Um, or is this, like, his hot, sexy great-grandson? With I'd comic okay books, with that too. it could very well be his hot, sexy great-grandson who looks exactly like him. Or great-nephew, because there's no indication that he has a child to have a grandchild, so. That's Nephew. true, although he could <laughs> come back and might have had an Army Hammer-esque relationship going on <laughs> to throw another Call Me By Your Name reference in there that we didn't know about. Um, all I know is I want answers, damn it. This is now giving me questions, and I've spent a day sitting in a dark room, okay, looking at the CLA, wondering, what does it mean? But here's the thing. Patty Jenkins herself tweeted a picture and said, Welcome to 1984, Steve Trevor. She intends for us to wonder what the fuck is going on. Yeah. So I trust her. Yeah. Patty, for that reason alone. You owe me for many a sleepless night. I know it's going to happen. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're getting rewarded by spending those sleepless nights thinking about Chris Pine. So, you I, know. Yeah, yeah. This, this just goes well with the Chris Hemsworth stuff that I already got brewing in my head. So then I can have some sort of weird double Chris fest. That sounded really bad. So we're just going to move on. I think that sounded really good. I was going to say, after <laughs> my Chris is in there and I'm good. <laughs> The fourth one okay, can leave, well, but I'm good with the other one. Karen, Karen and Kim would know that logistically that would frighten the shit out of me. That would terrify me. That's literally a stress dream right there. You add that fourth Chris in there and it becomes a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, no. Depends on the other one that we're throwing. If it's like Pratt, then I would just kill myself because who wants Well, Pratt he's, That's why anything? I say he's the fourth Chris. <laughs> Ugh. fourth Chris. He's the lowest of the Chris's. He's, He's like the last bad. Chris. I would put Chris Jin Bale ahead of him. Okay? <laughs> I'll cheat. I will outright cheat. Alright, so, Wonder Woman 1984 has changed its release date several times. It currently now will be out November 1st in 2019. And I will be counting the days. I already I made my waiting. little chain link thing, so. Just kidding, I didn't do that. Um, all right, so, uh, you guys, Father's Day is this weekend. Meh. <laughs> That's how I feel about it, too. Um, but... Aww. Not all of us have awesome Lauren dads, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I like my dad. I <laughs> my dad's fine. I just don't talk to him that often. Um, my dad blows, so there you go. My dad's not a bad person. He just, you know, we're not that close, and whatever it's sad but it is what it is that's our um, separate patreon therapy podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh i've spent years in therapy already but um anyway <laughs> uh so Alrighty. but let's talk about some dads that we don't need to go to therapy over um decider had an article this actually was several weeks ago and i've like kept it on the agenda so that we could remember it and come back to it at the right time. And this is the right time. Uh, so Decider had an article about the hottest sitcom dads. The 18 sexiest sitcom dads ever. And they include Frank Lambert from Step by Step. Jesse Katsopoulos from, you know, Full House. Um, Donald Glover from Atlanta, which I don't even watch that Hell show. Hell fucking yes! Um, we will skip over the next Pop-Tarts. person. Um, but then there was Hal Wilkers... Wilk- Wilkerson from Malcolm in the Middle, Phil Dunphy from Modern Family, um, Gomez Adams, 
Okay, uh, not John Aston. Sorry, nope. Uh, I yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Would not have totally. would not have pegged more totally. into that. Totally. Well, it's it's, it's really the yeah. relationship. Yes. Yeah. It's like it's the relationship between him and Morticia and Aston, Carolyn Jones, and then also the fact he's a great mm-hmm. father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he really, really is. Like he's he's just constantly. You know, I remember I remember when the first Adams Family episodes I saw was like Wednesday's really upset that like they killed the the dragon and he is just so comforting he's just like who would kill the dragon that's such a horrible thing he's like holding his little girl telling her that it's okay it's really sweet yeah um, it's like a great he's dad. like number three for, he's like number three on my list <laughs> yeah there you go okay um, <laughs> so Kristen, you're wrong um then we have nick russo from blossom alan matthews from boy meets world dre oh johnson God, from really? blackish what yeah, I thought the Trump was sexiest. Like none of this is is working. This is this is probably a millennial <laughs> writing this list who's you know had a yeah, Google probably. search in front but of them. That's why I'm going to read the list and then we're going to talk about which ones are should be there. Um, Jimmy DeMeo from Speechless, Perry Cox from Scrubs, um, Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec, Joel Hammond from The Santa Clarita Diet. Robert Petrie from the Dick Van Dyke Show. Okay, Terry, well, a lot of support. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Jeffords from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Tony Maselli <laughs> from Who's the Boss. Louis Wang from Fresh Off the Boat. And that is it. So, that's their list. What are on some of, who are on some of yours? And we do not need to limit this to sitcoms. If but, we don't want I, to. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> So let's just let's just say um, hottest TV dads in general. <laughs> okay, so so okay, we all know what I'm gonna say. Karen knows what I'm gonna say. No, I, I was waiting for Karen to. I mean, Shane is the father. So. No, well, we know no, I didn't even throw that one in my head. Oh my god, that's fucking great. <laughs> Okay, no, I was gonna say I was gonna say Kevin Garvey from the Leftovers. Oh, oh. oh yeah, Justin Thoreau. Um, yes. So definitely. yeah, he's like the sexiest dad of sexy dads. I mean, just like I'm surprised that there wasn't a line outside his house of people wanting to fuck him, men and women. <laughs> um, yeah. So so I mean, he was kind of a shitty dad at times. Oh yeah. But but if we're talking about hot, I mean, like. Come on. And we all know that John Bernthal was a way better father figure on The Walking Dead than Guppy Grimes ever could have been. So. That is false, but. That's not. Um, it's true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, do you have any you'd like to contribute? Uh, no, actually, actually, most of them were on that list that when I think about it. Uh, Robert Petrie, like, yeah. I love I love the the Dick Van Dyke show and act again though it's about the relationship. There's something about when you have those relationships where the the father and mother obviously really care about each other and really love each other. There's just something very sweet and and sexy about that. The the other one is I have always really enjoyed Phil Dunphy mm-hmm. because he's just such a dork mm-hmm. but is also very sweet and again trying trying to be a good dad as best he can. Not always succeeding. But um, but really, again, it's that loving his children and actually caring about what happens to them. All I know is ask my mom about my love for young Dick Van Dyke and watch her gag. <laughs> she finds it disgusting. 
I just, he's cute. I, she, I mean, she, yeah. says, she says, quote, Dick Van Dyke is an American icon. He is asexual, you sick son of a bitch. <laughs> I would just like to point out that Kristen has father issues and goes for who's hot. Hell Lauren yeah. has a wonderful relationship <laughs> with her dad and goes for the wonderful dad relationships. So let's see, see what see, Kim has see. to We're say. We're all in psychology. So I'm it's all easy. probably snuck, stuck smack dab in the middle between those in terms of relationships. But I am going to throw out, and this I'm cheating because there's tech, there's two forms and I think he's sexy in both forms. Uh, Lost in Space, John Robinson. So I'm referring both oh. to the 1960s. I was going to say played by. Yeah, I'm re- referring to Guy Williams in the 1960s version. And I did watch the most recent one with Toby Stevens in the same role. And they're both just Wanky so hot. Gray, pure him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not, that's not, not a great father. I mean, you pack up and take your kids to the, you know, the middle of nowhere only to crash. But it's, this is speaking from pure objectification. I mean, I come at Guy Williams from his Disney Zorro days. So it's, I, I had to find a way to work that one onto my list. And then I started thinking about Lost in Space and I just realized both of them. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of, I'm with Lauren, several of mine are on that decider list, um, but going with, with Kristen's take on it, too, if we're just going by hot, even if they're shitty dads, (laughs) um, I gotta, I gotta also say, I have this weird thing for Walter White. (laughs) Really? So yeah, I don't know what that says about me, but damn, he's we're hot. gonna give Freudian up in here. <laughs> sometimes the best way to pe- to cleanse you of your own shitty dad issues is to just fuck a hot dad. Problem solved. Problem solved. But I would That'll like be to seven hundred dollars for my analytical advice. All the lists that I saw had Malcolm in the Middle, Brian Cranston on it, but very few had the Walter yeah, White Brian Cranston. Yeah. So much I'm hotter in Breaking Bad. Oh my god, that just sounded gross. <laughs> I know. I know, I felt terrible coming out of my mouth. But um, but I also want to say another hot dad that is not terrible, regardless of the actor who plays him, I don't know. Um, Jack Pearson on This Is Us. I and also, Randall Pearson on This Is Us. I Those are two really great dads that are also really hot. So, there you go. All right. That, and anyone for David Harbour on uh, I don't Aww. get that. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't it's get weird. it. I, I it's, get it. It's, well, I get he's it. He's not officially a... I don't know. He's a it's paternal a figure. He's officially a dad. He becomes officially yeah, a father. Yeah, I guess that's true. And he is cute. He's cute and he's sweet oh. and he really takes care of... Put everyone, him so. next to Goldblum on the Kristen doesn't see the hidden image that you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's just some. I mean, we know that you're wrong about this. So. She just, is very. Okay. I'm telling you, it's like those 3D pictures that you used to look at, and like the hidden image would appear. I could never see those because I think I had shitty eyesight, and yeah, it bothered me. And if that this makes bothers a lot of me, sense. <laughs> that's the problem. It's okay to be wrong, yeah. Kristen. Embrace <laughs> it. Let it just be who you are. Um. <laughs> so okay. So moving on from sexy dads, if we must, um, let's talk about unsexy underrepresentation. Um, 
So this week there was a study at a university here in Southern California. Um, they actually put money into a study to tell them things we've all known forever. Um, <laughs> USC's Annenberg School of Journalism released a report saying that, um, big shocker, most critics are white men. Didn't we just do this like, study like six months 82%. ago? 82%. What? Like yeah. every week they do it because they, you know, don't know that you can just like look at a bunch of reviews and see that they're all white dudes. But um, anyway, to so that was, of course, you know, the conversation of a lot of people where men were like, wow, really? I had no idea. I need to do something about this. And women were like, um, duh, we've been telling you forever to do something about this. Um... But Brie Larson announced when she was accepting an award. I can't remember where it was or what it was for. Sorry. But um, she was giving a speech and announced this was not her making a suggestion. She was actually saying that Sundance and Toronto film festivals are both enacting plans to help and to encourage underrepresented critics to be able to participate in their festivals. And the way that they're doing that is that they've committed to allocating 20% of their top-tier press passes to underrepresented critics, to people of color, to women, um, possibly to disabled critics. So this is a good step. It's interesting because a bunch of men started freaking out, like we're trying to steal their jobs or something. And I'm like, okay, first of all, dude... It's 20%. You still have 80%. This is a 2% difference in that Annenberg study. Like, come on. <laughs> like, ah. Anyway. Sorry. Who wants to talk about Well, this? I mean, the Annenberg thing is something that, again, we, we had a study, I think, about this right around the time that Rotten Tomato about Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-huh. And Rotten Tomatoes finally pushed to at least approve women who they had been told had applied multiple times. Um, that's the only reason I got on to Rotten Tomatoes, um, was that I found an email and was able to, like, force the issue. Um, that was after three years of applying, chronically. Um, and it's still not perfect. The, the thing that I've been kind of discussing with people online about this Annenberg study, um, and I, I appreciate Karen including, uh, me in this discussion, because I felt like a lot of critics especially women were kind of stopping at what they knew so you know they were like yes this is such a true study we need to have more room for for women and minorities and lgbt and trans and then that's where they'd stop and it got me really frustrated because i was like disabled critics specifically disabled female critics i've only heard of two disabled critics me and one guy I've never met a, another female disabled critic. I don't know if there is one. Um, there probably one here is. in LA. Okay, yay. Thank goodness. Um, so three. Three disabled critics. Um, and I feel like that that's forgotten a lot in, in this, you know, discussion is that, you know, we're, we're starting to see this push towards more acceptance of different groups, but we're still ignoring groups like disabled critics um, just because you don't see them. And they don't go to festivals because many can't afford it. Um, it goes back to what people were saying. You know, it's great that, that, you know, these festivals are offering passes to underrepresented critics, but access is often just part of the problem. 
many critics don't get paid. Many critics don't get paid for their coverage, let alone their travel. So how are you going to deal with that? And that's that's tenfold if you're a disabled critic because you're dealing with U.S. accessibility, international accessibility. And that is a whole different can of worms that the festivals just kind of tend to throw off. You know, oh, well, it's not our problem, it's the theater problem. Um, so I, I it, it kind of really jazzed me up to get really angry about how you know, disabled criticism is is probably the worst thing to get into because you're dealing with this perfect storm of issues in, in America. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, things like Sundance and, and TIFF offering 20% marginalization, you know, access to, to marginalized critics helps, but I want them to do more towards disabled criticism. Um, and I'm, I'm talking to one, one festival on Tuesday about this, but, you know, that could all just be talk. Um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm also really frustrated at the the limits of of what the community, the film criticism community, is still kind of ignoring. Well, and I think that it's important that they are beginning to talk about, and that I think we all need to begin to talk about this issue of underrepresented critics. That it isn't just one specific group. It's not just see, so like you're saying, we tend to talk about women. Okay, well, but what about women of color? What about disabled women? What about LGBTQ women? You know, so it's not, it isn't just this split between male and female. It's a split. It's the fact that straight white men have basically dominated the conversation when really they should be a small percentage of a, a much larger group. Men should, white men should not be a majority. No one should be a majority when you really come down to it. Um, it should be a bunch of small percentages that, you know, try to represent as many people um, and as many different perspectives as we can possibly get. But, you know, like you're saying, there are there are challenges that face disabled critics versus facing, you know, anyone who is able-bodied. Um, in terms of the, the men being like, oh, I think it's really indicative that up until this point there's been a lot of talk. Right, these studies have come out and people have said like, oh, we need to do something about that. And then nothing has really changed. You know, you get editors saying like, oh, I want you to pitch to me. I want, I, I, we want greater representation. And then nothing really happens. You, you know, you look at their staff list or you look at their contributors, it hasn't been a big change. Um, suddenly, this is an, these are festivals that are actually saying we are going to make physical changes to who we give press passes to. And we're going to try to up the number of underrepresented critics that are that are attending these festivals and then suddenly all of the men are like well but anybody can review a film you know it shouldn't just be about you know women or men or this or that and and i think the part of this is that they're they're threatened they're afraid because they're seeing that what has been talked before and what has been very easy for them to do is to say oh i support you without doing anything about it now something is being done about it and they're seeing their access possibly, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing their jobs possibly threatened. They're seeing their access possibly threatened um, by this this incursion of diversity. And I mean, at, at this point, I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're, if you're afraid of losing your position, your position of privilege because you're a straight white man, I really don't care. I'm sorry, but I really do not care. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, at least in the Sundance situation, I can I can say when I was there this year, and it was my first time ever being there um, with a press pass, and what they're talk what 
they're talking about this 20% allocation, that's actually not even the press pass I had. They have different levels. And they're talking, there's one that's like the top level. It's some kind of an express pass. I don't even know how it works. But what I do know is that everyone I saw at Sundance that had one was a white dude. See, I didn't even know that pass existed since I was, you know, stuck in the standby line the whole time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and and, well, that's a a one line. I was just gonna say that's that's a problem. I remember that um, coming out of Sundance, and there were there were uh, uh, female critics of color who were talking about how they couldn't get in to see Black Klansmen. They were like begging for tickets, Mm -hmm. and. That's that's a fucking problem, you know. I I mean I know that yeah any, anybody can review anything, and it shouldn't just be female critics reviewing female driven or female directed films. But when you have nothing but white men and maybe one black woman reviewing a film about written by, directed by, and about racism in America, there's a fucking problem. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like Brie Larson in her speech, she said which was grossly misquoted by some people. Uh, she said, I don't need a 40-year-old white dude to tell me what didn't work about A Wrinkle in Time. It wasn't made for him. I want to know what it meant to women of color, biracial women, to to teen women of color. And that's the thing. Like, And I was having this conversation with a white male critic the other day. Um, but I was talking, like, what we were talking about, I was saying, like, yeah, there's still room for those 40-year-old men to review a movie like A Wrinkle in Time and to say hey this didn't work for me and you know who they're speaking to other guys that are their peers they're not speaking to me I don't I don't it doesn't benefit me to hear what they think about it but it you know benefits other men maybe but that's the thing like there's still room for them but there needs to also be room for us to talk about these things Mm -hmm. to talk about why Ocean's 8 is such a great, you know, great movie, or why Ghostbusters 2016 worked so well. Like, you need to have all kinds of voices. You need to have people that can share their own personal experiences and how that movie affected them. And so many movies just get either totally celebrated or totally tanked on their critic scores because it's not an, it's not a wide enough scope of the viewing audience. Well, and to... Yeah, it's... Sorry, go on, Kristen, you want to... Uh, well, I was gonna, I was gonna jump back a little bit to what you were talking about, about festivals, you know, I, when, when you're dealing with festivals, a, a lot of people were saying, you know, it's, it's why those top passes need to be given out more towards minority critics, because a lot of times if you're on a press line and you just have, like, a basic pass, or you're, or you're online press or something like that, you're at the back, you don't get the same access to interviews. You don't get the same access to talent. I know that when I did AFI Fest and we did, they did the the red carpet for Mudbound, they actually put me at the end of the line in front of two tall people who ended up getting the interviews and then nobody saw me because I'm super freaking short. Um, and, and so that's kind of the thing is that you need to be able to find ways to allow not just access to the movies, but access to the talent as well. Because yeah. you're getting, you know, interviews from the same, you know, 20 white guys that work for the big publications. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it's about access. It's about who gets to see what, when. It's about who gets to have a say in something. And we've seen that, you know, in, in terms of the buzz that gets going on Twitter, the social media embargoes, all of that stuff. It really does matter who has the loudest voice. 
and right now it has been straight white men and that has to change it has to and it's gonna mean that some of them are going to lose some of their access it fucking sucks to be you dude but i really do not give a shit exactly like we haven't had any so shut up yeah Kim? I mean, I am look. I'm I, I'm interested, but I'm kind of where I sit is the it's the getting there. It's the logistical aspect of it. It's like the pass is great, but unfortunately, it's a boatload of money. I'm going to be paying off the debt from Sundance for years, probably. It's having to pay for your own airfare, having to pay for your own hotel. It's there's more factors. If this is a great step but it's not a solution. There are more factors that play yeah. into this, and there's more factors that keep people from doing it. If you're from a small outlet who gets paid in, you know, Starbucks coffee cards, and if you're writing, you know, if if, if you're not getting paid to get yourself there, if you don't have a room, if you don't have airfare, you're paying through the nose to get to some of these places. And it's stuff like that that really stands in the way in terms not all of us can afford to get to Cannes to get to Toronto to get to Sundance I mean it's this is a big problem and we're going to be you know this this is a great step but I don't it's not the final solution wait Kim you get paid in Starbucks coffee cards because I would love to get paid in Starbucks coffee cards <laughs> that, that, that's the that's perk. where your money goes anyway right <laughs> hell yeah exactly I need to cut down on my coffee budget <laughs> well, but it's so true. I mean, this is just, this is the start. This cannot be the end. Exactly. This cannot be the sole goal. This is like, okay, we're going to start actually making these things accessible to underrepresented people. Yeah. And it, we got to move forward. Yeah. What I'm curious about is how that even works. Because I don't remember there being, uh, like, I didn't even know that there were those separate passes for Sundance until I got there and saw it for myself. So I don't know if they just like designate, oh, well, this person has been before. We're just going to give it to them. Or if there's going to be like a spep, if there's a separate thing. I don't know. See, how it works, I'm, but. I'm hoping it's a seniority thing because I know somebody who writes for, there was somebody there for a site who was probably the same size as mine who had the same pass that you had. So I'm like, I'm, I'm going, and she'd been there, I think a second year I'm go So I'm going, please, maybe I can move up, a, move up a level next year. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Yeah. Um, cause it is fun. And I mean, I am fortunate. The only reason I was able to go to Sundance is because I have friends that live nearby. And so I didn't have to pay for a hotel or any of that. I didn't, I, I drove my own car. So, I mean, that's, that's the kind of things that you have to do. So, um, Okay, so moving on. There were some trailers this week. There were far fewer trailers than last week, thankfully. <laughs> Although I could have used another, you know, Bad Times at El Royale trailer. Hell yes. But, um, so we had two. First we had the trailer for The Little Stranger. Which, um, Kim, why don't you take it away? <laughs> well, and that was, I, that was one of the ones I think I had. I know a couple of us actually had it on our most anticipated for this year. I didn't see but anything Kim I didn't is, like. Kim definitely <laughs> Donald Gleason in period clothes. I mean, I, that will get me there alone. Not to mention the fact that it looked like a, so that was, that was an actual, that's my horror movie speed. Or at least by the look of it. So it's 
it's you see it seems like it's from his character's perspective arriving at the and I have not read the book so I am not familiar with too too much of the backstory he arrives at an old English manor that he has a history with growing up there um, looks to be end of World War II, so you've got a little bit of that in terms of subtext, and then it looks there appears to be a haunting problem at this old manor. And it trailer was creepy, problem. and I just I thought it worked. Yeah, this is this is a uh, Letty Abrahamson's follow up to Room, mm -hmm. and I saw the trailer for this when I went and saw Hereditary, and. I I feel like I've seen this movie eight times before. Um, the the whole English manner. There's a ghost. It reminded me of the Woman in Black. It reminded me of there's a movie with Rebecca Hall and Dominic West that I can't think of the name of it right now. But it's it looked like that. Um, that that it, yeah no, yeah. You're about. Um, so it looks like every movie. It looked like Winchester in a way. I mean that whole drab color palette. Um, you know, big bulky house secrets. Um, so I don't know. I I feel like I need to maybe go actually see the movie, and the the trailer didn't do anything for me because I was like, oh, I've seen this before. Uh, I I have read the book. Um, and and I this looks from the trailer from the trailer. This looks very much what the book is. Um, it, it is it is a riff on a ghost story it is a riff on the haunted house story but it's a very different interpretation of it and one of the strengths of the book is that it's all told from the point of view of this this one doctor who becomes who, yeah he has a history with the house and uh, with the family that lives in it and then he sort of gets involved in their lives and this haunting that they seem to be going through but it isn't clear whether it is um, the, the family essentially going crazy or that there's an actual ghost or a combination thereof. So it's one of the strengths of the book is that the haunting is is treated very psychologically and it's very weird. Like it isn't the typical ghosts slamming doors and things like that. Um, it's like stains appearing on carpets and on the sides of walls and things like kind that. Kind of more like so, the others maybe? Yeah, it's closer to that. Okay. It's closer to that. Or, uh, I, Chris, in the, the Rebecca Hall movie that you mentioned, it's very similar to that. Um, this looked great to me. Like, this is exactly my... I'm, I'm with Kim. This is exactly my speed uh, in terms of haunted, haunted house movies. And, uh, and it's a good cast. It's a good director. Uh, I'm totally down for it. Like, if they, if they do the book, like, this is going to be a great film. Well, and you know, Lenny, well, Lenny Abrahamson has good, you know, has a good track record for adapting a novel into a good movie, so hopefully he'll... I, I do think that, that end of August date, though, takes it out of any Oscar talk, but... Oh, yeah, but I don't think... That's fine. Well, it's that's fine, movie. yeah. 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 I, I wasn't concerned about that or even thinking that way. I was just thinking uh, case I there are, did a good job with yeah, the room. In case there are people who are like, what about Oscars? Um, no, I don't see it. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> another movie trailer that we got this week that's just like, wow, if you want to gauge how differently people see films, look at the Twitter reactions. Look at the breakdown of who's reacting how. For the trailer for Dumbo. Okay. I'm <laughs> on this. Yeah. Well, this is my point. Like, we all, I think, feel pretty similarly. 
but there are a whole lot of white dudes who just freaked out and like were just in well because they still with... think tim burton's relevant yeah <laughs> yeah I also think it's partly because they don't understand what the point of the story was in the first place. But anyway, Kristen, go ahead. So Dumbo, this is a remake of the 19, I believe, 41 Disney yes. animated film um, about a little elephant that's got big ears that gets confidence by learning how to fly with the help of a magic feather after he is brutally ripped from his mother's arms, not at the border, but from a circus, um, and has to learn how to get along without her by getting drunk and hanging out with a person of color, uh, a bird of color named uh, Jim Crow. It's got some problems since 1941. Um, so, <laughs> no, really? <laughs> um, take out the Jim Crow character, and Dumbo is a perfectly fine little movie. Um, like the, I mean, really though. It's probably, most people I don't think actually watch the movie all the way through. It's only 78 minutes, I think. But they I think only. It's 65. 65, minutes. yeah. It's less than, it's a little over an hour. Um, but I think most people only know Dumbo for two things, which is maybe um, the pink elephants on parade scene and the baby mine scene. Um, nobody actually, I don't know anybody that would say Dumbo is their favorite Disney movie. So why the fuck would we need to do a live-action version of a 65-minute animated film about an elephant with big ears? Um, I don't know, but Deucey's gonna because try. it's not about an elephant with big ears. It's exactly! a guy who takes care of an elephant. You know what ears. I always wanted to know about the original Dumbo? Not what went into the decision of making a character called Jim fucking Crow, but what about the, uh, the humans? Huh? Huh? What about all the regular Joes just wandering around the circus? Well, you're in luck because Tim Burton decided, fuck the elephant, I'm gonna make a movie about the circus. Um, it looks like- I really they... hope they don't fuck the elephant. <laughs> oh, oh my geez. god. <laughs> Thank you, Karen, for that. Um, <laughs> it looks- the trailer to me looked like Big Fish fucked the greatest showman. Um, yeah, that, that you can go with all the, all manner of, of the imagery right there. Um, You're not wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if I never have to hear another Lana Del Rey-esque inspired slow jam of a Disney music uh, number again, I'll be very happy. Um, because it sounded just like this, the, her adaptation of uh, Once Upon a Dream from Maleficent, and I don't want to be reminded about that movie. Um... I love Colin Farrell. I love Colin Farrell, but I don't want to see this movie. This looks horrible. And I wondered, why is the dialogue so bad in this movie? Oh, well, because it's written by Aaron Kruger, who has never written a good script in his life. Don't give me that shit about The Ring being a good script. It's not. Okay? No, it's not. It, never written a good script. He's coming off of the Ghost in the Shell remake. Okay? Well, you got to remember too. He also did write three Transformers films. Oh, oh, wow. and those made millions of dollars. So and everybody loves box the dialogue. Office is the only measure of quality, don't you know? That's what I was informed of this God, week. God damn it, Disney! Can't, can't we just fast forward to Aladdin and give me sexy Jafar? Because I—that's what I want. That's remember, what, Aladdin was kind right of we all want. extras, so that's going to have its own okay. problems. Kim, it's not going to be perfect. I just need to be able to conk out with hotness. That's it. That's all I need, okay? <laughs> it's not going to get that in Dumbo. I want to know how they're going to handle the crows. Yeah. I. It looks I to really me like do. they're not. 
much like all Disney things, Lauren, they're just going to pretend it never happened. Well, I just wonder if they're going to keep the song, because that's a big song, and it doesn't have that many songs in that film. Um, and so... They'll probably have Colin Farrell sing it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's just, I mean, anybody listening, you want to go watch that song in Dumbo and try to tell me that it isn't incredibly racist. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. And no, we're not talking about Baby Mine. <laughs> No, no. Uh, an elephant fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, baby mine can, can Well, stay. ultimately, people just need to start voting with their money, because Disney's going to keep doing this shit as long as people keep paying, a, you know, giving them a billion dollars to keep making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Tim Burton needs to quit doing this shit. I thought he was done after, because he didn't do the second Alice in Wonderland, did he? I figured he was gone, and oh, no, no, he wants to do Dumbo. It comes out March 29th. He has not been the same since he and Helena Bonham Carter split up. He just replaced her with a new Helena Bonham Carter. No, there's no new (laughs) Helena Bonham Carter. There's only one. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, that comes out next March. So let's move into reviews. We do have a couple movies to review that um, you guys didn't talk about next week because thank you very much for letting me have the chance to be part of that conversation. Um... I do want to say we got to kind of move quickly through these, though, because I have to be somewhere in 40 minutes. So let's start. Um, let's start with Tag, since I think Kim and I are the only two that saw it. Um, and then we'll go into the other ones. So uh, really quickly, Tag is based on a true story. It was based on a Wall Street Journal article that came out a few years ago about these guys that are grown men who have been playing the same game of Tag since they were nine in real life there are ten of them in the movie there are five and uh, it stars Jeremy Renner, Ed Helms Jake Johnson um, Hannibal Burris Isla Fisher um, Leslie Bibb Rashida Jones is there for some reason so yeah anyway um, and basically the whole point of it is that Jeremy Renner's Jerry has said that he doesn't want to do it anymore he is the only one in the group who has never been tagged and so they're out to get him because now he's getting married and they're like they see this as their final chance to to finally get jerry so kim (laughs) it it is as nauseatingly bro-y as it sounds (laughs) Uh, that's basically it all you can say i mean there's I mean, I laughed. I laughed in a few places, but ultimately, it is there's no. Uh, it the point is about as stupid as the you know the article it's based off of. Why are we watching this movie? If it seems like these guys just want you know, it's just it's watching these guys play you know tackle each other and throw each other out of windows and. Uh, Renner had fun. Uh, I I found it you know I found Renner playing a bit. Renner was playing it up and seemed to be having fun with it, and I enjoyed that. Um, Isla Fisher was probably my favorite part, and but basically showed that this movie had no place for women. It didn't want women in there. It didn't think it need, needed women in there. There's a reporter character in there that's an absolute joke. The fact that she's even in there, try they're trying to structure it in with the script, I think, to you know take turn it into this article, and it was a really poorly made choice. It. There's such potential there, and it just... It could have been so, so, so much better. Yeah. So I felt a little bit... Slightly differently than you did as far as... I thought that as a concept, it actually wasn't bad. The way that it... The way that it... um, 
is intended, I thought that it was actually not a bad idea and could have been a lot of fun. And in some places, it was a lot of fun. There were some scenes that were hilarious. Like, there's a scene where they lure him to the country club where they're supposed to be having the rehearsal dinner. And they set up something pretty elaborate. And he, you know, he he's anticipating it. And there's another scene where they're at his house. And, like, they do some really funny things that are like, hey, this is pretty great. But at the same time... There are some terrible things that happen in this movie. Like, the first time you meet Isla Fisher, it's because she's there helping her husband, who is uh, Ed Helms. And, because um, she's she's not allowed to be in the game, but she helps out, and she loves women, that. Women and, can't play in the game. Right, because they started the rules when they were nine. And uh, they haven't changed that rule. But, uh, anyway, but... It's her meeting Jake Johnson, who is a total stoner. Like, literally, he's been getting high with his dad. Opens the door, sees her, realizes what's happening, pushes her down, and gives her a bloody nose. And that's supposed to be funny. And, like, there's another time where he does the same thing to her, too. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, the the misogyny in this movie was unbelievable. The reporter character, I couldn't tell you what her name is. Um, nope. I don't think they even say her name. And it's funny because that was such an interesting opportunity because the original Wall Street Journal article was actually written by a man. And so they could have actually, you know, it, it could have been cool that they actually were using, that they switched that and didn't make it a man. They made this reporter a woman. But they didn't do any good with that it, other than to check the box and say, oh, look, see, we're inclusive. She stands in the back and asks the occasional question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and then, really like, more gets told to suck a dick. Oh my gosh, I was so <laughs> pissed at that point. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, there are some things that I thought were clever. Mostly, though, this was definitely not the movie to see in the frame of mind that I was in yesterday. Dude, dude bros on parade. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so I don't really recommend that one. It gets a, eh, you can skip it. Yeah. But let's go from toxic masculinity to uh, women being awesome. Yay. Let's talk about Ocean's 8, which is, um, it's a spinoff. It's not, it's not really a sequel and it's not a gender swapped Ocean's 11. It's a spinoff movie because it's in the same universe and some of the same characters pop up. And uh, Kristen, why don't you start us off with this one? Um, so I've I've seen this twice, um, and I I love it just as much as I did the first time I saw it. Um, I I love how the women interact. I love the costumes. Kate Blanchett. I'm fairly confident if she was ever in my presence, I would be her lover forever. I, I just I think she's fantastic. Um, she's got some <laughs> great costumes and some great <laughs> facial expressions, and just like. How the fuck Sandra Bullock could decide that, like, ah, I could find somebody better, and it's fucking Richard Armitage when she's got Kate Blanchett. I call shenanigans. That's, that, I'm assuming, was the mm-hmm. Gary Ross decision of the script. Because um, it's co-written by, by Gary Ross um, and Olivia Milch. But um, I love the costumings. I, I was talking about how, much like something like a Sofia Coppola movie, this movie fetishizes um, costumes and jewelry, and you know what? That's okay. You know that when it's when it's women that are able to be competent and still like being feminine, 
that's totally good. Like I was, I was totally into it. I loved Anne Hathaway. Um, I do think the movie has some issues. The third act is um, a bit stupid because they inter uh, introduce a new character that really serves no purpose other than to just really wrap things up. Um, and there is one character from the original Ocean's films that pop up that I thought was unnecessary. Like, we get it. You have to have some way to throw in the other movies, but it's just such... There was two. There's two? There's only one. Oh, yeah, there's that's two. right, that's right, that's right. The, there's two. The The second one makes some sense. The first... The Elliot Gould cameo doesn't really need to be there. Um, the second one actually really <laughs> made me mad, but I'll... Yeah, I, I mean, I can't I, say why without spoiling. I don't feel you needed callbacks to the original or to the Soderbergh versions at all, because um, the Soderbergh versions didn't have references to the '60 version. So why do we need callbacks? But that's really nitpicking. Um, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Lauren, I haven't seen it yet. <gasps> what? <laughs> oh. oh no! I thought you had. I'm no, sorry. no, I'm seeing it. I, I, I put it off because my my father really wants to see it on Father's Day, and so we're we're going tomorrow. Must be fun to go to the movies with your dad. <laughs> this is our <laughs> reminder that some dads kind of suck. My dad doesn't suck. He actually took me to lots of movies when I was younger. So, um, okay, Kim. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I mean, I I believe my first thought walking out was I'm probably into ladies now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Kate Blanchett in that movie. My, my God. Oh, I it's, can't wait for this movie, honestly. <laughs> uh, the costuming and just everything about Kate Blanchett in there, I was so freaking there for. Um, it's just the, the costuming, they all looked amazing. Just how calm and collected and together these women were i mean it's I, I i enjoyed the hell out of it i thought richard armitage and eh, that didn't i'm with Kristen. there shenanigans he didn't he barely needed to be there and the third i i agree also the third act went a bit off the rails I didn't need that change in pace and that change in structure. It was, it felt weird. It felt like they were trying to stretch things out. And that particular character, he was just doing what he always did. And it ultimately is not needed at all. But it was, it was fun. It was enjoyable. And I, you know, I've been kind of really cautious about this one because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And I loved it. Yeah. Um, I, I am not a fan of Rihanna, but I loved Rihanna in this movie. I thought she was great. I wanted See? more of her. I didn't think there was enough of her. I didn't think there was enough of Aquafina. And I think they had pretty decent screen time, but I just, I loved them so much that I wanted more. I wanted more Mindy Kaling. I wanted more Sarah Paulson. Like, I loved them all so much. I thought Anne Hathaway was great. I mean, Sandra Bullock is just amazing. And then... Queen Kate, holy crap! Like, oh my gosh! Like, just yeah. Everyone wants wants Kate Blanchett now, but um, yeah, the movie is is a lot of fun. It's you know, it's not it's not this amazing piece of of cinema, but in some ways it is. Like, it's just it was exactly I think what we needed right now. And one of the things that I loved so much about it was that the women all work together they're they have a job to do they all have their parts to play and they do them nobody's like 
you know, being catty or, you know, they're not fighting amongst themselves, which for some reason men think that's what women do all the time. And it's like, uh, we're, you know, look at the four of us. We're four women. We never fight. We work together weekly. We get along really well. We talk all day long every day. We don't fight with each other. Women don't all do that. And I don't know why men just like have to think that they do. But it was great to actually see on screen all these women working together and doing their jobs and doing them well. So that was a, a great thing. And I think a big part of that is the fact that you have the screenplay co-written by a woman. And, you know, the cinematography even was very, um, I think, very complimentary to women. It wasn't all super gazy. Like, I think that any gaze that was there was just because these women are all incredibly beautiful and gorgeous. And yeah, I was looking for gaze, yeah. and I really wasn't seeing much. It, yeah, it wasn't a lot of, like, gross up the, the side slit shots or any of that. It wasn't, like, weird angles that prominently displayed cleavage or anything like that it was just very like let's just appreciate what's happening and what these women are doing and let's celebrate them so i loved it i thought it was great i cannot wait honestly yeah i cannot wait to hear what you think about there is there is a line of dialogue in this movie that will totally go under most people's heads but it will be on my probably my favorite line of dialogue list i wonder if i know what it is it's it but it's not but no most people won't know what it is. Okay. It's well, it's we'll a it's a Helena Bonham Carter line. I might know that. Okay, yay! We'll talk later. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move to... Uh, Lauren, did you see Incredibles 2? No, but can we talk about Hereditary? Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was going to ask. Like, if... Yeah. Let, let's talk about Hereditary, and then we'll finish out with Incredibles 2. So, um, Hereditary, why don't you start us off, Lauren? Uh, all right, Hereditary, which is the, according to some people, the scariest movie ever made. They and if you lying. don't think it's the scariest movie ever made, then there is something wrong with you, and you're a horrible person, and don't ever go see movies again. And and I and I have to say, I found this movie very scary. Like I really liked it. I really enjoyed myself. It is not the scariest movie ever made. If you. Uh, Karen, you said it on Twitter the other day. If you think this is the scariest movie ever made, then you just have not watched enough scary movies. Um, yeah, her Hereditary is, I mean, it, I think most people know the basic plot, but the basic plot is that Toni Collette plays a mother who's, whose mother has just recently died. That's how the film opens. She, they have, she's got two kids, and it's about, um, it's about the family working through the grief of losing the grandmother, but it becomes more and more apparent that Tony Collette at least thinks that her mother has cursed her family. Uh, and I think the saying much more than that might wind up spoiling a bunch of things. It is a very scary movie. It is very well put together. I think that the, the upping of the tension and the creation of tension is amazing in this film. I liked the fact that there weren't a lot of jump scares, although there are a couple. Um, but it really is just about this tone and uh, creation of dread throughout throughout almost the entire film, really, right up until the, the like final 15 minutes, um, in which at which point it truly, you know, all, all hell breaks loose, as it were. Um, I think that the performances were great. Toni Collette is, is amazing. Uh, she really does run the gamut of emotions, and she makes everything very believable. Uh, Although there there are 
couple of things that kind of gave me pause. One of them was the number of very prevalent visual references to other films and to, in some ways, more, you know, better films like The Exorcist and particularly Rosemary's Baby. And that's also kind of contained in Colette's performance. I was seeing a lot of shades of Mia Farrow in her performance, uh, particularly as the film goes along and she begins to get even crazier. At the same time, I really I enjoyed it. I think that the final act is amazing. Um, the the use of you know, I was talking on Twitter about the Hitchcockian blot, the use of this un, these uncanny elements, the way that the eye works, the way that, that sound is used. It's really well put together. Scariest movie ever made? No, but a very like decent, strong haunting horror film. Yeah, I. Uh, I thought it was really funny because when I said that comment, oh, if you think this is the scariest movie ever, I'm going to assume you haven't seen any scary movies. Like, it's really funny how many people just climbed out of the woodwork to tell me, well, horror is subjective. And I'm like, yeah, I know. You're the one saying it's the scariest movie ever. And if I'm not scared, there's something wrong with me. Like, come on. (laughs) Like, geez, it's so funny how it's like when they say it, it's right. When I say it, I'm wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I didn't find this movie scary. Uh, there were a couple of good moments where it was like, Ooh, it did make me jump, but it was supposed to, and it was intentional and it was well played. I didn't dislike this movie. I've had so many conversations this week where people are like, well, why did you hate hereditary? I'm like, I didn't, I just wasn't blown away by it. Like the rest of the world was, I thought that everything it was building to for, an hour and 45 minutes was kind of derailed by the last 15 minutes or so. And that was really frustrating. And it's like, you can get away with having an imbalanced film if it ends well, but when it ends poorly, that it just kind of, for me, it makes it hard to fully appreciate what I've seen up to that point. Tony Collette is amazing. Alex Wolf is really good. Millie Shapiro is great. I really liked Gabriel Byrne. I don't know how Tony Collette plus Gabriel Byrne equals Alex Wolf, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you know it is what it is. The the performances are good overall. I think that the story is interesting. I like what it presents as far as um, grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think my biggest problem, and this is the thing, like this is one of the rare cases where I feel like you know what, maybe I do need to watch this again, and it will shift my overall opinion of it because I think the biggest problem for me walking into the theater was that it was completely overhyped. Everyone was saying how scary it was to the point where I was ready to go look online and read the spoilers because I was just like, I don't know if I can handle this, you know, this level of fear. I didn't do that. But then when I get to the box office and buy my ticket, the kid at the counter is like, good luck. And I'm just like, oh crap, you know? And so that's the thing. I think it, I think for me, I need to go in now that I know what it is, now that I know what happens, I need to just go in and watch it again. And hopefully it will be a more solid experience as far as not having all those outside influences. Now I can just sit down and watch it for what it is. So, uh, Kim? Oh, I, I, ugh, I, I, I have been very vocal in the last couple of weeks, last weeks, kind of my thoughts on the hype. And I was, now I will preface this with the positives. I, filmmaking wise, I thought it was incredibly solid. The performances were amazing. 
I mean, I am. I will jump right onto that barricade with most people that Tony Collette needs. We need to get that woman an Oscar. I think she's one of our. You know, she's such a gem that we have just underappreciated for years. That being said, I just didn't get this as a horror movie. I was. I mean, horror is subjective, but my God, I was bored. Jumps. I mean, there was a couple early jump scares that kind of got me. I would have preferred to have seen this as more of a drama and a study in grief. I could have seen that, but just the horror elements didn't get me at all. I was yawning, especially until we get to about probably right before that last 15 minutes in which it was just, okay, where I'm, I felt it was a little derailed. It's, I just didn't, I nothing about this movie in terms of being a horror movie gelled for me. There were moments where I'm where I found myself sitting there going, "Man, are they believing their own hype?" Just in terms of how long certain moments were milked out, where it's like, "Okay, okay, yes, are yep, we know what happened. Let's okay, okay, we're still on this close up. Okay, yes." And it I wanted to like it, but I just don't I mean at this viewing I don't get it and I would like to be as adult as Karen and say maybe I need to see it again but I found it such an unpleasant viewing that I don't want to see it again yeah I I mean I've seen it twice uh and I went with my mom to see it the second time um and she said that you know it was it was slow for her for like the first first 20 minutes or so um, I still find something about Hereditary completely unsettling. Um, and I, I think that it's a really great for up until the last 20 minutes, a really great ambiguously played, um, look at mental illness and how we deal with grief and how we deal with the, the kind of sins that our parents pass on to us. Um, and, and all of that. I love Tony Collette that there's a dinner table scene in this movie that is just so relatable yeah. and so horrible on so many different ways. Um, and it has one of the greatest insults. Um, again, speaking of lines that'll be on my, my end of the year, this, there's one in that scene that will be on my list. Um, I, I thought, um, Alex Wolf was really good. Gabriel Byrne is there. Um, never trust Anne Dowd. We all know this. Um, <laughs> I do think, though, that the movie hits its apotheosis about 25 minutes in. Um, a, a character dies, very horribly, uh, in a very shocking way. And I think that the movie never really gets as suspenseful and shocking as that, that scene. Um, I do have issues, though, seeing it a second time around regarding the tropes of, like, the, the character who is kind of, like, to use the term, touched. Um, you know, mentally impaired and socially awkward. Um, so Millie Shapiro's character is fine, but I have issues with, with her usage in the film um, from a disabled representation standpoint. Um, the last 20 minutes, I think, are, are fine, but you can't introduce those last 20 minutes and have an exposition, exposition dump. I think that's what it becomes. Um, even though the yeah. movie wants to play up the like much like killing of a sacred deer did the the greek tragedy elements there's a vein that runs throughout this movie about greek heroes um and yes the clues are all there to to use uh the snowman um but you know you can't have all these things and act like we're, we're supposed to know them 
if you're only showing the audience in the last 20 minutes. Um, but it didn't bother me. So I really enjoy this movie. Enjoy being a relative term, but um, I, I do recommend people see it. Again, it's, it's hard to watch both just not for the imagery, but for just the... It's been a while since I've seen a movie that's as anxious and tension-filled and just uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what it does more than horror. Well, I think that's what it does really well, and, and, and that's what I'm saying in terms of ramping up the tension, that you're expecting something bad to happen, and you're not quite certain what it is, but it's all there, and it's simmering underneath the surface. And even though it takes a long time for, like, bad things to truly, like, actually bad things, not just psychologically bad things, actually bad things to actually occur. Uh, but, yeah, I, I understand some of the, the comments about it. I the there were a couple of elements that I feel like they introduced and then didn't really do much with the elements of like um the the mother building all of the small uh you know the little houses and the little scenes and everything yeah which kind of builds up throughout the film and then they they just kind of like oh we're not going to do anything with that and I was like but but that seems like it should have been important and now there's you didn't really do much with it and uh, and it was the same thing with uh, certain certain elements that were like as you're saying introduced very late, that suddenly were like oh we're now oh now I need to understand what is actually happening but you really should have told begun telling me this, you know, 15 minutes into the film. Yeah, well, and my thing with this, and actually this will segue into our talk about Incredibles 2 as well, one of the things that frustrates me in movies is how everything would just be over so much quicker if people would ask one simple question or two questions, you know, that should make sense <laughs> and that people just normally should ask those questions. Well, this is also a here. movie where 911 is not the first line of defense, apparently. Right. But right. but there is a great line, and Gabriel Byrne has it about calling the cops, and I th I really do like that because he's just like we need to call the police, and and it's it's finally just like yes yes you definitely do call the police. See, yeah, I was Gabriel Byrne throughout this whole movie. I think that most of <laughs> us I was are Gabriel Byrne. I felt <laughs> exactly like I'm going what the fuck is going on here I wasn't feeling it I wasn't getting it like you need help <laughs> yeah. I'm like what the hell guys what the hell exactly so alright so that is still playing in theaters um, and let's wrap up with Ocean's 8 let's talk about that some more um, <laughs> let's finish off with Incredibles 2 I'm going to keep my comments very brief. Um, I liked this better than the first one, but that's not really saying much. Kim? <laughs> of course you segue to me. Um, I, there, I was all over the map on this one. Um, I, first of all, I'm, I'll start out with the positive again. Jack-Jack the movie, I want it. I, the in, that entire sequence, which I know Kristen and I have talked about a little bit, of him and the raccoon, I thought that was one of the funniest things. I, I laughed out loud a number of times through that. That hooked and pulled me in. Um, I, it's, it's a solid, funny Pixar movie. You know, we have, there's, what, three schools coming from Pixar? You've got the funny Pixar, you've got the utterly destroy you emotionally Pixar, and then you've got the cars Pixar. 
And this <laughs> this is a solid entry and kind of the funny the funny good Pixar. Um, I thought this hit the rails a bit, and I will endeavor to stay away from spoilers with the villain. Kind of the main, I guess the main A storyline was where I had trouble. Kind of the construction of the villain, the development of the villain. It, I, that, and this is a struggle to stay away without giving any spoilers, but I didn't like the message that the movie was putting across. And I thought they could have made it so much easier and I thought it telegraphed itself very clearly very early um, to where I was predicting it and then the message I was seeing I wasn't enjoying I would have preferred that a storyline just completely go away if it would have been the B you know the Mr. Incredible and then you know at home and Jack Jack I could have enjoyed it so so much more it was just that a storyline was a big struggle for me Kristen yeah, um, I, I saw it. Um, my mom did not like it. Flat out didn't like it. Um, and we both love the first Incredibles. Um, I had issues with a lot of things. Um, I, I thought the Jack-Jack storyline was the best, but it also felt like that could have easily been excised and turned into a series of shorts. Um, they play... I thought there was a short. That's the thing. There was a short, yeah, with the first film, Jack-Jack Attacks. <laughs> Um, and this is just yeah. seems like a continuation. You could have easily lifted those scenes out because other characters are often not in them and just release them as shorts. Um, my big problem was 14 years to write this script and it feels like he Brad Bird could not figure out what he wanted to do. Um, so you have uh, several plots happening. The Mrs. Incredible, the Elastigirl stuff is interesting, but you have a villain that is created literally the first day she starts this new job. And so when you're saying, oh, well, that sounds convenient, the movie then wants to turn around and say, oh, it's convenient because of narrative purposes. It's convenient because I wrote it that way, so you can't complain that it's sloppy writing because I always meant for it to be that. No, that's not how you write a movie. Um, and and I, I had a big issue with that um, but because the villains are just blah. Um, Bob Odenkirk's character is blah. Catherine Keener's character could have been a Cape Blanchett-esque Ocean's 8 type of character with uh, Elastigirl, but um, again, blah. The characters aren't distinctive. Um, we want the Incredibles, the, the family. Um, I hated Violet's storyline. Flat out hated it. Um, I mean, it was bad enough in the first film that she was, you know, she's the teenage girl that feels invisible, so what's her power? Invisibility. Um, but here it involves like a boy and my other problem was is that Mr. Incredible I hated him in this movie because as Mrs. Incredible starts to work it becomes this kind of Mr. Mom cheaper by the dozen type of thing where he has to deal with like oh raising kids is really hard and he's really bitter about the fact that he should be doing superhero work like really really that's what we're gonna go with um, the movie has some interesting thoughts to say about like media perception Although, um, Brad Bird is a big fan of Ayn Rand, as I've been told. Which I don't know how I feel about th how, the, th how that works out in this movie. Um, but I was, I was just, th I thought it was fine. That was it. I thought it was okay. And after 14 years of waiting, it shouldn't have been fine. It should have been great. Um, this feels like Brad Bird, Tomorrowland failed. And I say this is somebody who enjoyed Tomorrowland for what it was. Um but he, he needed to get back into making a movie that he knew was going to make money. This will make money. But it just feels like they needed something 
and damn it, it should have been better. It should have been better. There's no reason it should have been better. The Elastigirl storyline feels like one giant attack on feminism. It feels like one giant attack on the media with a little bit of, like, yeah, women... The media is the reason why women are the way they are. Or why we think they are the way they are. It's all about the media. You, you silly women wanting to break out of the house and, you know, matter. Huh, exactly. It's, it's, Huh, it's interesting, because I didn't see it that way at all, but what I did get frustrated by, and this is something I was alluding to with Hereditary, is it's like, this movie would have been over much quicker if she would have just asked a couple of questions at the beginning, like on the first day of, hey, where did this villain come from all of a sudden that no one has ever heard of? You know, things like that, where it's like, just, just, just give this a little bit of critical thinking, and you'll come to these conclusions much faster. So, I don't know. I, I Some of it really worked for me, but in general, I just, I find these characters <laughs> boring, and that's why I didn't really like Incredibles, and that's why I don't like Incredibles 2 that much. I don't dislike it, but I'm just like, eh. It's, it's just, it doesn't really do much for me, so. Um, all right, well, that is going to close us out for this week. Um, of course, you can always follow the podcast everywhere we are on twitter at citizen dame pod we are on facebook facebook.com slash citizen dame we have our website citizen where we have all kinds of fun content for you this week's top five is gonna be something Fa- father's about day dads. yeah father's day entertainment yeah um Kim uh-huh. will also have her Feminist Friday right now. If you go on the website, because um, I know Lauren had mentioned that people wanted to know what was up on the website in case they had missed it, um, we have our fa- uh, Citizen Dame 5 favorite problematic films, as well as Kim's review of the 1940 feature Dance Girl Dance. Um, so yeah, that's up right now. And You can also go, like every time we have our top fives every week, we also post a poll on Twitter. So check out our top fives and then go and Me. vote for who has the best five. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's clearly me, but that's okay. Lauren. Uh-huh. If they want to give you a consolation prize, that's fine. We also have our Patreon, patreon.com slash pod. It's Citizen Dame. Slash Citizen Dame. And we have some fun bonus content. And next week, Kristen and I are going to be doing Sicario commentary. That's going to be When you say fun, doing really Sicario, say. I feel like there should be more of a benefit <laughs> for me in that. And there's just not. <laughs> Well, it's going to be fun regardless, <laughs> so definitely subscribe, be a patron, and For just a dollar, for just a cost about... of a cup of coffee, you can hear me complain about how much I fucking hate Sicario. <laughs> and how I think it's speaking. It's speaking of pa- Patreon, so we are $5 away from Kristen having to review yeah. the last exactly. six Josh Brolin movies she hasn't seen. Five measly five dollars measly and you will dollars. get to hear me physically be upset over having to watch the late 1980s film Thrashing. Just look it up on IMDb. I have avoided this movie for as long as I possibly can. I don't want to watch it. It looks like shit. We are also only $460 (laughs) away from hearing me talk about exactly why I hate this I feel like we need to add something more to that social network thing. Like, we need to get Army Hammer to sit there while you watch the social network and complain about it. (laughs) You know what? I would. I would tell him to his face why I don't like this movie. (laughs) I would be 
the one in the background. it actually has very little to do with him. So. I would be the one in the background being uh. like, don't listen to her. You're a special snowflake. I love you. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so that's what we are up to. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. Kristen, where are I'm you? I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Lauren? I am at LH Business. And Kim? At KPR624. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening. And please reach out. Let us know if you have any questions or comments or whatever. Um, and we will read them on the air. So uh, thanks so much. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.